You're listening to the Writers Off The Page podcast. Here's your host, writer, reader, journalist, and lover of soy latte, Sinead Maripodi. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me on Writers Off The Page, where I sit down with authors to find out the story behind their stories and their top tips for getting published. Best-selling crime and thriller author Candace Fox started her writing career with a bang. Her first novel, Hades, won the Ned Kelly Award for Best Debut in 2014, and she backed that up the following year by winning the Ned Kelly Award for Best Crime Novel for its sequel, Eden. Since then, she's gone on to release a number of best-selling novels, amongst them multiple collaborations with US thriller maestro James Patterson. Their latest is The Two Sisters Detective Agency. Candace Fox, is there anything you can't do? Yeah. <laughs> There's plenty. <laughs> I, uh, I I I do one thing really well though, I think, and that's that's the writing game. But uh, yeah, yeah, well. it, it sounds very accomplished when you put it all together like that. <laughs> <laughs> so take me back to the very beginning. What got you writing to start with? Oh, you know, I had a really weird childhood, like most authors I know. Um, I think I was disassociating a little bit from a very chaotic and strange household. Um, my mum uh, is sort of the instigator of all that. She um, uh, she had four kids of her own and then she adopted two and then she fostered 155 kids <laughs> as I was growing up. Um, she was a prolific rescuer of animals and trash and you know people uh in and out of the house all the time she just uh she couldn't focus and um you know she was just a collector and uh, that made for a very a very weird and wonderful uh upbringing my dad was a parole officer at a sydney prison so he was bringing home um you know wild and violent stories from work and uh and yeah and and so i started writing as a means of escaping all that i think and having a uh having a, a world that i could control on my computer you know i was the boss of everything so and was it always crime for you no it wasn't i got big into Anne rice um when i was a teenager and so it was vampires and werewolves and that suited my my mentality at the time because I was a sort of a depressed teenager, very goth, um, kind of angry, uh, a bit of a loner and and so that's what I was writing and uh, I got into crime really into, I was frustrated, frustrated with the, the fact that I wasn't getting published and I thought maybe a, gen a genre switch will shake things up. And it did. Um, um, I both of those genres, you know, the the fantasy slash horror kind of genre is difficult to get into, and crime was difficult to get into at that time. It's had a renaissance, um, uh, and at the moment, it's one of the the leading genres. I think it's the leading genre in 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 Australia. It's a, it account well, it accounts for one third of all book sales. So <laughs> so it must be. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's what finally got me through after four failed novels and over two hundred rejection letters. I I, I two hundred rejection letters. Yeah, 
yeah it uh it gets you down after a while it gets very frustrating very repetitive and was that for just of... one manuscript or was that a couple that no was... no no that so i wrote four full manuscripts and then i thought i'd be sort of time efficient because i and towards the end before i got published i was really getting frustrated and so i was writing uh pictures with ten thousand word samples and then if that all got rejected, I wouldn't write the rest of the novel. Um, and and so, so four full novels and a bunch of sort of pitches uh, accounted for the 200. And then I had a, a bit of a false start. Um, Hades, my first novel, was picked up by an independent publisher. You know, so uh, my first yes was with this independent publisher who was just a guy behind his desk in the Isle of Man of all places. I had to actually Google where that was. And uh, and so he he was going to publish it initially and then he ran out of money um, after having oh, it for so You'd had your hopes built up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I had a, a few false starts over the years of um, I got... There was one, the New York Literary Agency was very interested in me over one of my manuscripts and they, you know, they were saying, oh, we're going to take your book to the London Book Fair and all this kind of stuff. All you had to do is pay us the $250 reader's fee and then all you ha- oh, we're going to we're going to give it to one of our senior editors so all you have to do is pay us another $250 readers fee and you know i'm 16 when that was going on so they wheedled a lot of money out of me uh yeah so hopes up and then you know by the time a publisher in australia has rejected you six times already they start to recognize your name so they start calling you to do the rejections because it feels a bit more personal. And so I was forming connections with publishers and they knew me and I was sort of close. I just felt so close all the time. Were they giving uh, you any feedback that was actually useful or was it just a, that was, was sorry, but no, stop calling us. Stop me, Marilyn. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes there were little tidbits. Uh, I did get a reader's report on one of my novels. So it had gone all the way to the acquisitions uh, table and uh, the edit, the um, publisher had asked someone to, you know, to make a reader's report on it, on what it, what it would need uh, in order to be fixed, really. And the reader's report said it was an editorial nightmare um, um, because of its size. It, it was 250,000 words. Holy moly. So how long, three, just to put that into perspective, how long is one of your standard novels now? Um, 70 to 80. Uh, the Chase, my last novel, was 115, and that's big. Yeah. Um, so 250,000, you're looking at... You know those George R. R. Martin fantasy size ones, mm. where it's like you could throw it through someone's window type of thing. It's huge. Um, not a crime novel. Could be weapon uh, in a crime novel, perhaps. Yeah. And I was in a space in my like I don't want to use the word journey because it's cliche, but in my journey to becoming <laughs> a, a writer, um, where I thought editing was just adding more adding more description and making things more vivid 
Uh, whereas these days it's cut, it's cut, 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 you know. Um, uh, so, so there was that. So I'd edited it a bunch of times and added 20,000 words or whatever it was uh, every time. And, uh, and, and yeah, and I got a little bit of other feedback. Publishers were keeping an eye on me and I have run into those publishers these days, you know, you, you meet them at parties and things and you say, Oh, it's you. And they say, Oh, it's you. And, and they have said, uh, uh, I was keeping an eye on you, you know, cause I knew you were going to write something good one day, but you just weren't there yet. And, uh, um, yeah. So, so, so that first publishing contract, how did mm-hmm. that come about? Who was that? And what was the phone call? I um, I was really down and out in my life in that moment. My first marriage had collapsed spectacularly and uh, unexpectedly <laughs> on my part. Um, I was living with my parents. I had no job. All my stuff was in garbage bags. Um, my cat had run away. Like I was down and out. And I, I um, the Isle of Man thing he had just come back to me and said, oh, I've run out of money. So I really felt like I had nothing in my life. And I hadn't done a lot of uh, work trying to get an agent over the years because I foolishly thought to myself, why would I share my income with an agent, you know, um, when I can just find a publisher myself, which isn't, it isn't the way you should think about agents. Um, And so... I said to, I got, you know, I started picking my life up one bit at a time. I I got a job and I was working at a Sydney university and I said to my supervisor there, you don't know anyone in the publishing industry. And she said, oh, you know, 20 years ago I went to university with um, this chick and she's a literary agent now, but she won't do you any favours like She's a bit of a hard nut and she, she really is a hard nut, my agent, Gabby Nayer, and, and proud and she should be proud of how hard she is. Um, so I sent it to her and she said exactly that. She said, I'm not going to do you any favours because you know this other woman. And she said, crime is really hard to get into right now. It's a very small genre and blah, blah, blah. Um, and she said it would really have to knock my socks off. And so I said, oh, well, here's hoping, you know, and I didn't think any more about it. Um, And then from there it was like, oh, okay, let's have coffee together. And so she figured they, they, an agent will usually take you out to coffee because they want to figure out, are you going to be hard work (laughs) as you know, because you and your agent over the years are going to have such a close personal relationship and they're going to be there for all the ups and downs and, and, and that kind of thing. So it's important for them to assess your personality, your professional personality. And I guess I passed the test. Um, and then 10 days after that, she had uh, uh, a couple of publishers um, bidding against each other for it. And, uh, yeah, and that phone call, that phone call that I had been dreaming about all those years happened. Uh, and I was in my mum's house dressed in, in pyjamas with cats all over them <laughs> that were dressed up like little scientists, um, lab coats and glasses and, and things. And, and I just was standing there and I just, 
I felt like screaming or something, but at the same time I was on the phone to this very hard woman who, you know, I didn't want to, so I was just, I couldn't get off the phone with her fast enough because I just knew everything that I needed to know. And is that, that was that I was going to be published by someone who was real and it was going to happen. And that's, I didn't care how much it was. I didn't care who it was. That's all I needed to know. So I was like, okay, bye. And I just, you know, just quietly freaked out after that. Yeah. Is it true that yeah. somebody rejected Hades 12 months after it had hit, already hit bookshelves? Yeah, it was 18 months after. Uh, I won't say who that publisher is, but <laughs> um, that publisher asks me for cover quotes every now and then. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, the, the book, um, the book had been out already and it had won the Ned Kelly award. So it's like not only the name changed or anything. Um, now let me think actually. Yes. The name had changed. The name had changed. Um, but still you're that far behind on your rejections and also you're obviously not keeping up with like what what the current market is or what's out there or anything because you would have known if you'd seen the synopsis because when they give the Ned Kelly Award out, they had the synopsis and all this. I don't know. Just, <laughs> oh, that was funny. Um, yeah. God, it goes I've to had... show how slow the publishing industry moves. Like we know yeah. it's slow that it's a long wait to hear back from submissions, yeah. but 18 months. Mm. I, I would say too long to be published anyway yeah that's the longest I ever waited for one but I would say if you are going into the slush pile um ex- expect at a minimum three months I mean this was back in the day so I don't know what the wait is now but I would say um nine months wouldn't be unreasonable and I would say uh back in the day I used to try and nudge them every two weeks and now I think to myself don't do that (laughs) just annoy them nudge them every month I know that uh slush pile meetings um uh which is where a bunch of staff attack the slush pile and try to bring it down uh in in my publishing house um in Australia that happens once a month so there's no point in hassling your publisher every two weeks because nothing's going to move, you know. Is there so. also that thought process and perhaps I'm just a little bit bitter and because I used to be a journalist, things moved really fast as a journalist. But in my yeah. head, I think of people who used to approach us for stories to follow up on media releases that they'd sent us and I think, look, if I really wanted this, I would have contacted you. If you haven't heard from me, it means yeah. it's a no. Is it? Yeah. It sounds perhaps negative, is it better to think like that and hope for the surprise and actually follow up? Is there ever any benefit in following up? I think when it comes to being an author, an aspiring author, you have to be as dreamy and mystical (laughs) as you can and so full of hope and wonder um, because if you get cynical and then you start thinking, what's the point in this? And, And... you know, 90,000 words or 80,000 words or whatever it is, whatever the hell it is that you're writing, it's a long time to maintain hope. 
you know, it's a long time. It's years for some people. For me, it's nine months. It takes me nine months or so at the moment with a two-year-old daughter to write a book. And, and so that's from nine drafting months, it to editing it to being ready for submission? Uh, or nine months yeah. for the first well, draft? Yeah, nine months for the first draft. I send in the first draft because I'm a brat and I, you know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm at this level where I, I go, you get the idea. Like I'm the not trying to. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not trying to impress them with like the fact that it's spell checked and all that crap. I'm trying to say this is the sketch, and then they go, okay, great, and then I color it in, and then I get back to them. Ah, uh, but but yeah, so that's for me is nine months. But I've always been very fast. But you know, so you're going to do this thing for a year or a year and a half or however long it takes you to write your novel and you have to hope every single day, every time, every single time you come to the computer, you have to have the hope that it will make it. Um, so those hopes have to be very big and dreamy and, and, and full of magic in order to do that. I think you can't, you can't be cynical and, and everything, um, all the numbers, are there for you to be cynical and bitter and angry and hopeless. Because if you run the numbers and I ran the numbers um, for a speech that I was giving, you are uh, uh, 10 times more likely to contract syphilis in Australia than you are to be published. If you try, if you put, you write a, a, a manuscript and you put it in, 10 times more likely to get syphilis and four times more likely to be struck by lightning. Well, I mean, the odds so are great, aren't they? <laughs> I feel but, a uplifted. But there are things, that's if you write in, like that, that's if you go into a slush pile. So what I've done to get those amazingly colourful stats is <laughs> I've run the numbers. I've said to publishers, how many submissions do you get into the slush pile and how many new authors do you take or how many have you ever taken? out of that slush pile okay but there's things that you can that's that's me saying everyone in the slush pile is equal okay but they're not right so the stats that's a variable the stats change so if you study creative writing if you look at the market and you look at what's selling if you you know um write more than one book and your books get better every time you write them then your odds change all of a sudden your chances of syphilis start to lower Yes. Well, there are things that you can do to be, to contract syphilis if you really want to to make yourself more magnetic for lightning. Okay. So these are variables. So you have to, you have to think that way, this way, rather than, you know, the other way. <laughs> oh, this went to a weird place. So tell me, I'm always interested in the research authors do. Now you go to some pretty dark and gritty places with your books uh -huh. is what's the weirdest thing you've done is it right that you interviewed a serial killer or is there something weirder than that now weird. since then oh i'm lining up some weird stuff i'm hoping to do some weird stuff in the future uh but um uh yeah that is probably the weirdest and i didn't really do that as research for the novel though i did it more as research for novels you know what I mean I think that it's important to have life experiences in case you ever need to write about whatever it is um so 
um, it's 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 just like eating as wild as widely as you can. So if you ever have a character who's really into Italian food, you know what Italian food tastes like. So I I I get as involved in crime as I possibly can without actually committing any. Um, so I saw Good clarification. It, <laughs> any difference? Um, I do jaywalk and I speed. I'm a lead foot. Um, so, so I was watching a documentary about this serial killer um, just because I was. That's what I do, and um, I saw the documentary, and I just went, "Oh my god, that is the worst thing that I have ever heard of." So there were two guys. Their names were Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, and their idea of a good time was to get a van and go around Los Angeles in the late '60s, early '70s, and pick up young ladies, ladies as young as 13, and put them in the van and drive them into the mountains and do horrific things to them and then kill them. Um, so I just thought that's just that's horrifying. And so I was living in the US at the time and I did a sort of a deep dive into this case and I realized that one of those guys was was, was only an hour and a half away from where I was um, in San Quentin. He was locked up on death row there and he was sort of the ringleader of the pair, allegedly. And uh, I, I said to my husband, I think I'm going to go, I'm going to write to him because I have some questions. And then I want to go and see him. By this I stage, can. your husband, this sort of comment from you is normal? Oh, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> he said, you're going to love that. He <laughs> said, I'll stay here. You go. Have fun. Tell me all about it when you get back. You um, picked someone on death row, so it's probably never going to impact us in the future. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He, I think he would be more nervous if I was pursuing and speaking to criminals in Australia where they could actually turn up our doorstep. Mm. Um, some of the stuff he gets involved in, like on our honeymoon, um, he said, where do you want to go on our honeymoon? We were going up the east coast of the US and um, I said, oh, there's so many murder sites and body dumping sites and things like that that I want to visit. And so he was Let like, Let me take Great. you to one on our honeymoon. Let me take you to where they dump bodies. Hint, yeah, hint. and so yeah. I like brief him on the case as we were driving until we got where it was. And I'd go, and he, she was buried here, and the witness saw a person here, you know. <laughs> and, and so he was into it, yeah. But meeting real criminals is not uh, his thing. So I, I, I went there on my own. And I visited Lawrence Bittaker in San Quentin. And so, um, yeah, it was kind of horrifying because I didn't realise I had signed up for a full contact visit. They call it full contact visit. And so that is where they put you and the guy inside a one metre by, no, two metres by two metre cage with bulletproof glass all around the inside of it. And he's cuffed. No, he's, he's uncuffed. and and it's just you and him sitting on plastic chairs inside a cage together and the guards padlock the door and then they walk away. I mean, this is stupid to walk into because this guy's got nothing to lose at this point. No. Yeah. Well, see, see that, that's where, because I said to him at the time, I'm, I'm really surprised that this is happening. And he said, what? And I said, this, like this, you know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> he was like, there's a rifleman who will just shoot me through the cage if I do anything. And I was like, oh, great. Uh, that's 
I mean, that's giving me so much relief. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, you know, I, I said later in a letter to him, I said, uh, uh, I've been telling everyone how horrified I was in that moment sitting re when they took the cuffs off you and they locked the door and all this. And he said, I wouldn't have hurt you um, because, A, I would have lost all my privileges like my commissary and my visitors and all that kind of thing. And he said, B, uh, there wouldn't have been enough time to do any real worthwhile damage anyway because the guards would have just swooped in or the rifleman or whatever. And I was like, that is so classic of you that you would give that answer. The answer is it wouldn't have been worthwhile doing it. I, I, I was like, for a normal person, the answer would have been, I wasn't going to hurt you because I'm not a bad guy. Because I'm reformed. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't a bad guy in the first place. I was just misunderstood and rah, rah, rah. But he's oh, gone he right over that. <laughs> yeah, he's past that. <laughs> His psychopathic brain is so transactional and so um, analytical that he didn't, he missed that bit. <laughs> so was it worth it? Did it give you it wasn't good ammo? Mm, uh, sorry? Did it give you good ammo for stories? Oh, ammo. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that um, I had written 12 novels already by the time I went in there with killers in them and I'd never actually met one. So like I said before, it's like writing about someone eating Italian food when you've never really actually had any Italian food. Um, and I, uh, there were nuances to his way of thinking that I really, I really had never been exposed to before. So you have your Hannibal Lecter type in fiction who's a real cold, snake-like character, but he owns exactly what he did and he's very self-aware and, you know, and so Lawrence wasn't like that at all. He was pathetic and sad and he just was making really pathetic attempts to get me to be his new girlfriend, one of his new girlfriends, because he has many girlfriends, or he had many girlfriends before he died. Um, and uh, it's, it, it, it was a, a weird thing to experience, the performance, because he was performing to me that I'm this poor misunderstood creature and if I had just been loved the right way, and maybe if you love me the right way, you know, you'll understand. Um, but the the mask would slip every now and then. Like he, I, I asked him, uh, what was your plan exactly? What, what were you just going to keep murdering women until you got caught? Like what is the plan? And he said, oh, by the time I got to number five, what was her name? And I said, oh, Lynette. And he said, whatever it was. He said, like, you know, whatever her name was, like mm. this, with his hand like that. And I thought, now that's interesting because have you literally forgotten the name of one of the five women who's convicted of five murders? We think there's an awful lot more. But you've been sitting here on death row for 38 years. Have you literally forgotten that name? Or are you pretending to me that you've forgotten that name? So, like, what is it? And which is weirder, you know what I mean? Are these people just so nothing to you that you can't even remember their names, your own victims who you murdered, the reason why you're here every single day, 
or are you trying to pretend to me that you don't that you know that you are this monster because you've just spent the last couple of hours pretending to me that you're you know very lovable and nice and misunderstood so, so you're there you're there and you're like what is real and what is fake you know oh. very useful for so, fiction Weird jumper from serial killers to James Patterson. I'm not at all surprised now that, I mean, you managed to get a serial killer to sit down with you. Why wouldn't you manage to get James Patterson to collaborate with you? <laughs> Are you sick of telling the story of how that came to be? No, no. If people want to hear it, I'll tell it. Um, so I got an invitation. This was after I, I was... I, I, I had been writing Crimson Lake for six months. That's when I, I, I met him. And uh, I got an invitation to go to a cocktail party that he was hosting in Australia, uh, in Sydney. And I said, hell yeah, because I've been, I've been reading James Patterson since I was a little kid, you know, like inappropriately, <laughs> sneaking in my mum's room, reading her James Patterson's because she had forbidden me from reading all of her true crime. Um, because um, uh, I I went to only only because I went to school and got in trouble for telling terrible stories to the other kids that had read <laughs> true crime novels. So she said, you, you know, she locked all that up and left the James Pattersons. And I I wanted to have my big fan moment with him. And I had floated, you know, I was really ambitious, you know. Uh, you can tell from the 200 rejection letters. I was really driven. I am still really driven and competitive. And so I did float the idea to my publisher. I said, oh, how does one get into a position where they might collaborate with James Patterson? And she was like, you know, you just got here type of thing. Like that was her, her tone was like, eh, you know, um, there are people in line for that. She said, there's a whole list of people. And I remember I joked and I was like, so who are these other people and where do they live? And I'll muscle them and I'll get to the top of the list type of thing. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and so, yeah, I went to the party and I had my little fangirl moment. I wandered over there and I said, I'm a huge fan of yours and I have been since I was a kid. I said, I, I read Kiss the Girls when I was 12 years old and it absolutely changed my life. And he was like, <laughs> wow, that's really inappropriate. Um, been, what was your mum doing? While you, he said, what was your mum doing while you were reading Kiss the Girls and I was like yeah don't I like we don't have time uh and and so he so my publisher the same one who'd been like eh, you know about me doing it saw us getting on uh, Jim and I chatting and Jim and you know, because someone someone of his caliber he's 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 the number one author on the planet like he outsells jk rowling and stephen king combined every year so when he walks into a room full of publishing people and book people and and every everyone in the room as soon as he walked in with his entourage everyone went oh my god don't look there he is you know where i, I was like get out of my way i want to talk to him because i knew he wasn't going to be there all night because these celebrity types they come and they do a little thing and then they leave um and so I, I was like, I want to talk to that guy. Get out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so yeah, so she saw us talking and she was like, hey, you know, not only did you try to, uh, try to get me to put you on the list, but you also barged over there. So um, she said a couple of weeks later when he had read the book, 
and said, I really like that Candace Fox. I like her writing. Would she want to collaborate with me? Uh, the publisher said, when I offered it to you, it was like I'd offered a dog a treat and it tried to snap my arm off. It was like that, <laughs> you know. So, so yeah, from there you've released multiple books with him now. The latest was Two Sisters Detective Agency. It's dark, yeah. it's gruesome, but it's also incredibly funny at times. Thank you. Can I get you to tell listeners about it just in case they haven't read it yet? Yeah, sure. Okay. So um, so Rhonda Bird is an attorney living in Colorado when she gets a phone call one day to say her strange father has dropped dead in Los Angeles. Now, she hasn't talked to this guy in the last 25 years. And she thinks, you know, from the last thing she heard about him that he's a mild-mannered accountant so she goes to Los Angeles to clean up his life and finds that not only is he not an accountant, he's actually one of Los Angeles's most uh, revered and corrupt and violent uh, private detectives. And not only that, um, he's also got another daughter, 15-year-old um, baby, uh, Barbara Bird, who is now in, uh, in Rhonda's custody. So she's like... Oh, my God, what has happened? Uh, so there's that. And the two are trying to get along and figure each other out um, in the wake of their father's death when a, a, a big case lands in their lap. So a bunch of young rich people have been going around Los Angeles beating the crap out of people in home invasions for fun, and they pick the wrong guy to do it to. They, uh, they pick an ex-hitman. <laughs> who comes after them and starts picking them off one at a time as revenge. Uh, so there's that. There's, uh, yeah, it's, it's fast and fun. And, um, and I, I really had something to prove when I wrote that because um, I had just had my daughter, Violet, and I was still in the hospital. So three days after I gave birth to my child, uh, <laughs> Jim had called me to say, uh, you know, congratulations and all that. And we had the outline and that kind of thing. And he was like, so when do you think, you know, when do you think uh, you, you want to start on this? Like, you know, should we check in in six months and see how you're going? And I'm like, I've started. <laughs> like in How's the your brain having just given birth? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, I was sitting there in the hospital and while the baby's asleep, I was like, you know, I'm going to start, I'm going to start. And so he was like, whatever you want to do. And so we started working on it. So yes, it was, um, it was a hectic time. And I think that a lot of the storylines about, you know, Rhonda and her feelings about her father and that kind of thing, it was all very raw. When you have a kid, you look at your own parents and you go, hang on, <laughs> what happened there? Uh, and so I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write. And, and, and so I started. Yeah. How does a collab work with, I have to say, your mate Jim, as you call him? <laughs> yeah. How well, everyone, he, he calls himself Jim. I always <laughs> do that. I always say Jim and people go, oh, Jim. <laughs> you call him Jim. No, just teasing. How does yeah. a collab work with him? Do you, I, just, I don't know, there's the multiple um, point of view characters and did you split those or does it work a bit differently? No, it's it's very messy and organic. Like it's um it's more people say to me, Oh, do you do one chapter each or whatever? But that would actually be very inconvenient, you know, with our schedules and 
you know, she's smoking a cigarette in this scene. We go to the next scene, make sure she still has that cigarette type of thing. It's not, a novel's not really like a cake. You can't cut it in half and say, that's your half, that's my half. Um, It's more like if you and I were going to get together and organise a wedding. Like, first we'd talk about it, like, what is the general feel? And, you know, we'd sketch some things out and we'd make lists and, and there would be emails and phone calls and we'd say, you know what, you do the photography because you're good at that and I'll do the flowers and you've done so much of this, I'll make sure I do that. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's really organic and we don't keep a track of word counts and, you know, who's edited how many pages or anything like that. Yeah, it just it just sort of... We just do it as our schedules allow. Yeah. So you said that you do an outline. Do you plot the entire yeah. book before you start? Yes, we do. You were the <laughs> first plotter I have had on the show. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Well, for my own stuff, I don't like to do that. Uh, I, but I've learned that that's useful to do since working with Jim. But he loves everything to be all outlined. And we, so we do a mini outline, like a pitch um it's a a page two pages we show that to publishers and they go oh yeah you know this is what we think and then uh, we do the maxi outline um so those run into the thousands of words like 15 16 17,000 words and it's chapter one this person's doing that chapter two this person's doing that um, so it's his spectacular blueprint. Um, but he, <laughs> he, he, he doesn't get frustrated, but he thinks it's funny that every time we put one of these outlines together, it's about two-thirds of the way through where I start going, yeah, let's do this instead. And then we get off and then we start going through the bush. <laughs> and uh, I really like to do the endings. So I say leave the ending alone for me because I, I really gallop and I, I'm putting down three, 4,000 words a day towards the end. And, uh, and he says, I never know what's going to happen because we've got this plan. And then, I, you know, I have a go at it for a while and he's like, you killed the guy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Did the two of so, you have quite similar writing styles to begin with or did you have to adjust a bit to fit each other? <clears throat> um, I know. So uh, we write in his style, which is the short chapters uh, of no more than a 1,000 words and there's not as much humour or, or in, in our early novels there wasn't as much humour as I would have liked. Um, because I think if there's an opportunity for a joke, you should put it in there, even if it's right in the middle of a really tense scene. I just, I find myself hilarious is the bottom line. You are very funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, you know, I'm like, I should, I, yeah. And so the early novels, he was like, cut this joke, cut that joke, cut that joke. Um, so there's that. Uh, but also... I it like to bounce so it because a Rhonda lot. was quite funny in the book and it needed that light and shade. It kept it yeah. going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's, he's given me more license these <laughs> days. But uh, in our first one, working together, never, never, he was like, cut, cut, cut. Uh, yeah, he's loosening up a bit, maybe, uh, with the jokes. But um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's fun. It's always fun 
to work with him. And he's so lovely. He's like an uncle to me. I feel like I'm calling an uncle. And we talked, last time we talked on the phone, which is maybe a couple of weeks ago, it was a 50-minute call and a good 40 minutes of it, I reckon, was us talking about our kids, like me talking <laughs> about Violet and him talking about Jack and, and just, you know, and we kept going, we got to actually talk about this book. Okay, okay. And we'd say something and we'd go, remind me of a time uh, when <laughs> Jack did this or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm conscious of the time. We have a lot of aspiring writers listening to the program. I'm going to put you on the spot. What would be your biggest thing that you've learned over the years about writing crime that you would pass on? About writing crime in particular? Mm. Um, I think that uh, in this genre, you have to try and be as new as you can. Uh, try to take a different twist because this is an old and broad and historical genre. You know, it has many, many subcategories. You got your hard boiled stuff, you got your cozy stuff, you got your your gory kind of things, and then you've got your shoot 'em up thrillers. Um, if you're trying to get published, you need to come to a publisher and say, "This is what's different." about my book because they their ears perk up when they hear that this is what's different this is what's new if you use those words and you mean it and you actually have something that's different and new then you'll stand out from the pack um the other thing i think that i have learned and that people should consider um and and you know maybe i'm being old-fashioned here but women uh this industry, the publishing industry, is 99% women, okay? And gratuitous graphic scenes of violence against women don't play well with women. So I think sometimes if you're going to write a really graphic, violent scene about a woman and what she's enduring, you ought to think to yourself, is less more here? Uh, and it usually is because I think about um, the girl with the dragon tattoo and everybody everybody says about that book, oh, my God, there was a big violent sexual assault scene right in the middle of that book. But if you actually read it, it's he sets it up and then he leaves and he lets you do the graphic stuff in your own mind. Um, and I think that if you're, if you're going to do violent stuff, sometimes you should think to yourself, do I really need to do violent stuff or do, do I just let the reader do that themselves? Um, yeah, because it just doesn't, it just doesn't play well in this, uh, in this industry. It doesn't play well with those people who are reading your book and deciding whether or not they're going to put it on shelves. Sure. Hmm. So what's next for you? What are you currently working on? Um, I got three things in the work at, at the moment. I have, I'm writing my own next solo one. I am editing another book with Jim. Uh, and I have a fictional podcast that I am writing. I've written three episodes of that and that's going to be an eight to ten episode show for Audible. So I've already got an Audible exclusive that comes out in March. So I'm writing another one. Yeah, so, so I'm writing two things and editing one. Gosh, how do you keep your head separate? 
when you're working on one project that that made no sense at all but you get what i mean how do you change <laughs> from one project to another uh you know it just keeps it keeps everything fresh yeah i i really think that it's like um it's like painting you can just be on the same painting and doing the layers and layers and layers and you just you get too involved with it you got to step away and do something else and then come back and get some perspective on what you're doing and uh, the other way it's kind of just like managing people like if you have a staff of 50 you're thinking to yourself what does frank need to be the best person he can be who the best worker he can be in this book what does he need to function what does he need to thrive what does he need for customers to fall in love with him you know in a in, a, in my managerial metaphor there so so it's you know people manage 50 members of staff all the time and keep them all separate in their minds so it's just kind of like that i think why not candace fox has been amazing i've got a million questions that we just don't have time to get to and i could go all day to be honest with you thank you so much for joining us today thanks for having me this is fun and thank you for listening to the writers of the page podcast make sure you check out the back catalog and while you're there i'd love it if you left a rating or a review it helps other people discover the podcast If there's an author you want me to chat to or you just want to say hi, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Shanae Maripodi. That's C-H-E-N-E-E. Thanks for listening. Bye.